I'm Josh Porter, and this is the Van City Church Podcast. The following teaching is part 78 in the series, The Gospel of Matthew. As the tragedy of the Passion story descends into darkness, one of Jesus' closest friends moves further and further away. Here's something about me. I, uh, I began therapy in the winter of 2016. I was not doing well. My wife Abby and I were living in Portland at the time during, if you remember, one of the snowiest seasons in the city's history. And I was moving closer by the minute to the first Sunday of a church plant I had been tasked with leading. And my lifelong on-again, off-again battle with and against self-loathing and despair had reached a fever pitch. All this I explained to my new therapist during our first conversation. And we talked about it then, and then the next week, and then the next week. And the meeting stretched on for years so that my once volatile struggle against self-loathing and despair became less so. And then it became peripheral and eventually distant. And through work in therapy and through prayer, through work in spiritual formation with community, and of course because of the healing kindness of God, it became mostly a memory. As someone deeply familiar with self-loathing, I can put this plainly, it is evil. A sin no different than hating a brother or sister who is created in the image of God. Self-loathing and despair are nefarious sins because they masquerade as humility, but are, in reality, deeply self-obsessed. They sabotage relationships, cripple spiritual formation, stifle maturity, and to put it plainly, they, like all sin, rob you of life. Today, in this season of my life, I don't struggle with self-loathing. I'm aware of my own shortcomings, but I like myself. I don't lapse arbitrarily into the nihilistic pit of despair. Of course, I sometimes get frustrated or pessimistic or sad like anyone else with the same bent, but I am better equipped to navigate these emotions without being seized in the horrible black claws of despair. And if you've ever overcome a certain cyclical sin in your life, if, you ever, if you've ever felt the freeing joy of repentance when you turn from one path and you walk a new one instead, then you know how intoxicating that freedom becomes. It's like realizing what clean water tastes like after years of drinking from a gutter. Intimacy between you and God is unclouded and discipline comes easier and without the heavy burden of failure chained to your back, you walk gratefully upright. And I was telling my therapist all of this a couple dozen meetings in, gearing up to ask a very important question. I told him about this, the freedom that I was enjoying. So how is it, I asked him, that after all this work and breakthrough, how is it that some new sin manages to find me. Some new struggle, some new mode of an old failure. 
In spiritual formation, we sometimes use the term integration to describe the disciple of Jesus as they mature in faithful obedience, as they experience more freedom, more peace, they become more integrated. Wasn't I becoming more integrated? I asked my therapist. I'm sure I was. How is it then that some new sin besets me and I feel as if I wasn't integrated at all? And he smiled and opened a drawer in his desk, drawing from it a printed article he'd kept for teaching moments like these. Josh, he said, did you know that Brennan Manning lived in New Orleans during Hurricane Katrina? Brennan Manning is an author that I had read for years. His writing had been massively formational. It had been healing for my soul. But it was actually my therapist who told me to read his book, Abba's Child, which became one of the most important books in my discipleship to Jesus to date. After the storm, my therapist said, Brennan Manning got a call from the senior editor at Christianity Today, who interviewed Manning, wanting his take on the chaos unfolding in New Orleans. My therapist looked at the article saying, he, Manning, is predictably humble-sounding, self-effacing, but he told the magazine that he'd remained in the city so that he could help others, that he'd helped identify lost children, for example, or he helped an old woman find a ride out of town. But, my therapist interrupted himself, a few days after the article went to press, Brennan Manning called the Christianity Today offices to clarify an important detail of his story. The clarification appears to this day as an editor's note at the article's heading. And my therapist read it aloud that morning in his office. It reads, From the editors, we regret to inform our readers that, following this on-the-record conversation, Brennan Manning called our office to apologize. He reiterated that he had been, quote, disoriented, confused, and depressed, end quote, lately and that certain details he provided were not true. He did not help identify a child from his, identity, from his apartment complex. He did not help an elderly woman get a ride. And while he was the last one to leave his apartment complex, quote, the truth is, there was nobody around here for me to help, he said in a voice message to Christianity Today. And then finally, the quote reads, the essential truth, I lied. When he'd finished reading this to me, my therapist was still smiling. And I was about to understand something crucial about following Jesus. The story we're about to read tonight is about that same thing. Turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 26. If you're new to Van City, we've spent several years now making our way one line, one word at a time through one first century biography of Jesus of Nazareth that we now call the gospel, according to Matthew. Shortly into the story of our little church, if you were around, we decided to organize the whole thing around the idea of apprenticeship, what I was talking about a few minutes ago. And I don't have to tell you there are more than a few misunderstandings about this thing we often call Christianity. But down through the centuries of church history, the idea has actually been relatively simple. Following Jesus is a relationship between a master and an apprentice. 
That is, our goal in following Jesus is the same as it was in the first century. The threefold, lifelong, all-encompassing effort to be with Jesus so that over time we become like Jesus and then we become capable, capable of doing the things that Jesus did. Jesus is the master. We are the apprentices. Jesus is the teacher. We are the students. He is the Jedi to our Padawans. He is the sensei. We are the pupils. He's the trainer. We're the fighters. You get the idea. But we are doing more than learning boxing or karate. We are learning how to be human beings. And our teacher is more than a teacher. He is the flesh and blood embodiment of the creator God. So we hang on every word and deed and story and inference and mystery of our master. We don't simply accept, accept some version of Jesus, good or bad, given to us by culture or our tradition or by social media. We want to know everything about him from the biographies of his life, from the written records of his teaching by eyewitness accounts. We work in community, not in isolation, to learn the types of things that Jesus did and practice doing them ourselves. And we spend several years now pouring over every line of one of those biographies because he is in every way our teacher and our Lord. Which brings us to Matthew 26. So let's read from Matthew 26 beginning with verse 69. Now, Peter was sitting out in the courtyard. Okay, pause. Here, Matthew is using a flashback technique. Now, last week we watched as Jesus remained frustratingly silent and non-compliant before the Jewish religious leaders, eventually confessing, much to the chagrin of his accusers, that he not only believed himself to be the long-awaited king of Israel, but he believed he was much more than that. Jesus says, he is the one from Daniel's vision in the Hebrew scriptures, the one to establish a kingdom without end, the one to whom all of God's authority will be entrusted forever. So naturally, Jesus' accusers declare him a blasphemer and likely thinking him a lunatic. They condemn Jesus to death. They spit on him. They take turns mocking him and hitting him. And just as that scene escalates tragically, Matthew then shifts the narrative backward in time so that we can behold a different test unfolding simultaneously, something like the literary equivalent of meanwhile, and then back to verse 69. Now, Peter was sitting out in the courtyard, and a servant girl came to him. You also were with Jesus of Galilee, she said, but he denied it before them all. I don't know what you're talking about, he said. It seems weird, doesn't it, that Peter would fail this test so soon after being told that this exact thing would be happen, after having denied its possibility so vehemently earlier that same night. Of course, Matthew doesn't tell us exactly what's going on in Peter's mind when he was asked about his relationship with Jesus or when he denied having one. But I think the previous scene of Peter's failure in the garden gives us a clue. Peter did seem prepared to follow Jesus to death, like he said he was willing to do, when he drew a sword and started swinging it wildly at Jesus' arresters. But when Jesus rebuked Peter for his violence, when Jesus went quietly, willingly with the guards, when the test was not of warrior bravado, but a test of peace and nonviolence, Peter proved 
ultimately unprepared. In his commentary on this passage, scholar Frederick Dale Bruner writes, when Peter protested earlier that he would never deny Jesus, he may have had in mind never denying Jesus before a mob or never denying Jesus before a great court like the Sanhedrin or in some comparably heroic setting. He never thought of a trial in trivial circumstances. Don't most of our tests of discipleship occur in such unlikely venues? So in the story, a nobody in context or a servant girl asks Peter, hey, aren't you with him? And he blurts out, I don't know what you're talking about. Maybe it was reactive in the moment, something Peter didn't anticipate. But then it happens again. Look at verse 71. Then he went out to the gateway where another servant girl saw him and said to the people there, this fellow was with Jesus of Nazareth. Now notice the language. First Peter was in the courtyard. Now he went out to the gateway. Peter is both literally and figuratively moving further away from Jesus. This is not a coincidence. Matthew is using his artistic literary voice to paint a full picture of compromised discipleship. And don't miss the other subtlety. The second girl claims that Peter was with Jesus. He was but is no longer. Matthew is highlighting the bitterness of Peter's unraveling. He is no longer with Jesus. And it gets worse. Verse 72, Peter denied it again with an oath. I don't know the man. So he goes from feigning ignorance, oh, I don't know what you're talking about, to swearing his denial of Jesus in moments from one person to the next. And remember, Peter is disobeying his master by swearing an oath at all. Jesus forbade his disciples to participate in oaths during his Sermon on the Mount. So Peter is using his sin to doubly betray Jesus at this point. And Peter won't even say his master's name. I don't know the man, as if Jesus were a stranger. And in this, his lie becomes an ironic truth. Peter no longer knows Jesus. Verse 73, after a little while, those standing there went up to Peter and said, surely you are one of them. Your accent gives you away. Now, we think his accusers are referring to Peter's Galilean accent. If Peter is from Galilee, as his accent demonstrates, wouldn't he know about the most noteworthy figure in Galilee at the time? And notice, now they accuse Peter of being not just with Jesus, but one of them, that is, one of the followers of Jesus. Matthew includes denying the church, that is, denying that you belong to this broken and imperfect family of those who follow Jesus, as akin to denying Jesus himself. And Peter responds in verse 74, Then he began to call down curses, and he swore to them, I don't know the man. Peter is, we think, calling down curses on liars in an effort to showcase his innocence. We've all seen this kind of thing play out. It sounds weird, but it's sort of like when villainous uh, abusers or predators, men and women convicted of terrible crimes, defend themselves. They will often defend themselves by repudiating other people. So they'll say things like, oh, I couldn't possibly have done this thing because I hate people who do things like that. I couldn't possibly be this type of person. I hate those type of people. 
who think Peter might be doing something like that, calling down curses on liars because he doesn't think he's one of them or he's trying to argue that he's not one of them. But some scholars believe that he is actually calling down curses on Jesus. So Peter calls down all sorts of fire and damnation against liars or his master or both to prove his innocence, ironically sinking further into his guilt. And this is actually the scariest moment in the story, I think. Bruner argues, this can only mean that Peter really no longer believes in God. And that is, in fact, the deepest source of all denials. We no longer believe that there is such a being. If Peter now had a shred of faith in a living God who honors truth and punishes falsehood, he would not have dared prayed God's judgment on a liar. Maybe that sounds dramatic, but remember, belief in the Bible is never intellectual acceptance only. What I mean is that in our culture, belief is the question we ask about God and aliens and Santa Claus. And by it, we mean that we either do or do not accept in our minds that these things exist. But belief in the Bible is determined by actions and words and lifestyle that correspond with intellectual acceptance. So if someone were to say that they believe in their minds that a healthy diet and exercise are very important, but they don't actually prioritize either thing, then we might say of them, well, they must not actually believe that. Or from a positive angle, another person might not say anything at all, but the people who know them see from their lives that they prioritize a healthy diet and exercise. So we might say of them, wow, they really believe in those things. Now, I doubt that Peter came to any kind of philosophical conclusions about his intellectual belief in God right there in that moment. But he has, in this moment, with his heart and mind, effectively denied all that he knew to be true. And as Matthew conducts the awful symphony to crescendo, he breaks the reader's heart with the abrupt punchline that concludes verse 74, immediately a rooster crowed. And verse 75 says, Then Peter remembered the word Jesus had spoken. Before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. And Peter went outside and wept bitterly. Now notice the awful escalation of the story's drama. As Peter moves gradually from the physical proximity of Jesus, he is drifting spiritually at the same time. And the accusations build. One girl says to Peter, but then another woman comes along and says to the group, and finally a whole group says to Peter. And as Peter drifts, the conviction of his denial escalates. First, it's kind of evasive and ambiguous. I don't know what you're talking about, which builds to an oath. And then suddenly a curse as Peter moves from the courtyard to the gate to the outside. One commentator I read this week said of this sophisticated tapestry of meaning, both literal and metaphorical, this is not only good theology, it is high art. The entire story is aesthetically breathtaking. Matthew's shift in scenes to tell of the simultaneous 
trial is a wonderful moment of literary sophistication. See how both trials work in a similar pattern. Matthew depicts three phases of the trial of Jesus before the Sanhedrin. First, they bring false witnesses, then the two witnesses who accuse Jesus of threatening to destroy the temple, and the final charge under oath by the living God from the chief, uh, chief priest Caiaphas. And this happens before the Sanhedrin, which is Israel's religious leadership. This is a portrait of Jesus' refusal to compromise even in the highest places of testing. He will not lie. He will not humor the oath. And he is cursed as a result. But then meanwhile, outside the home of Caiaphas, away from the Sanhedrin, Peter is also tried in three phases amongst the common rabble of ordinary life. And he fails every test. Peter lies, he takes an oath, and he calls down curses on others. And remember, this scene belongs to a greater story. In this same chapter, earlier on this very night, Jesus explicitly and specifically predicted that Peter would deny him three times. So as both these concurrent scenes reach their awful climax, Peter has failed, Jesus is victorious, and the scene concludes with Jesus being mocked and reviled as a false prophet, while in the distance and at the same time, Jesus' tragic prophecy is being fulfilled. Now that is incredible storytelling. We've talked uh, about Peter a lot these past few weeks, and really all throughout Matthew's gospel. Peter often exemplifies the paradox of our brokenness and our sanctification. He is both a hero in the gospel story and he is the fool of the gospel story. Jesus bestows upon Peter the honor of being called the rock on which Jesus will build his church, and he did. And here we are. Peter's confession of Jesus as king, the Messiah, the Son of God, is our confession tonight, following in the footsteps of the earliest of church fathers, as it were. But Jesus also rebukes Peter by calling him Satan. Get behind me, Satan. For in that moment, Peter was more concerned about the things of man than the things of God. And sadly, we have all at times in our discipleship followed Peter in that heritage as well. That is the tragedy of our cycles of integration and disintegration, which brings me back to the snowy winter of 2016 when my therapist handed me the printed article from Christianity Today, the article that had made one of my most beloved spiritual writers into a hero before a disappointing truth had come to life and revealed him the fool. I read the article's heading again. From the editors, we regret to inform our readers that following this on-the-record conversation, Brendan Manning called our office to apologize. He reiterated that he had been disoriented, confused, and depressed lately, and that certain details he provided were not true. He did not help identify a child from his apartment complex. He did not help an elderly woman get a ride. And while he was the last one to leave his apartment complex, the truth is that there was nobody around for me to help. He said in a voice message to Christianity Today, the essential truth, I lied. Nearing the end of his life, 
having written best-selling books and traveled abroad, speaking to innumerable churches and conferences and leaderships, a sought-after pastoral personality and theological mind, having followed Jesus for decades. And here he was describing his life as disoriented, confused, and depressed. And he lied. And my therapist, a PhD psychologist for many, many years, also a follower of Jesus, he said, Josh, this side of resurrection, none of us become fully integrated and stay that way. Instead, we go through cycles of integration and disintegration. Hopefully, we learn and we don't always become disintegrated in the same way and we don't stay disintegrated, but we come together and we come apart. This is, I have learned, neither pessimism nor fatalism. It is the way of the broken world and the broken people in it. Why did Brennan Manning devote his life to writing and teaching the things of Jesus? Because he loved the Master and he believed in him. But how did he become an alcoholic? Or why did he get divorced? Or why did he fabricate little heroisms to impress Christianity today and its readers? Why did he lie? Because he was a human being, broken. Being made whole, saved over the years of his life, but never arriving this side of resurrection. Integrated, then disintegrated. One minute, the rock. The next minute, Satan. I thought of Mother Teresa, one of the great heroes of church history. Mother Teresa asked that upon her death, all of her private writings be destroyed, but instead they were published. And the public was shocked to discover this great figure of the faith had privately wrestled with doubt and despair for decades. She wrote in her diary, such deep longing for God and repulsed, empty, no faith, no love, no zeal, saving souls holds no attraction, heaven means nothing, pray for me please that I keep smiling at him in spite of everything. Upon reading this, Many dismissed Mother Teresa as a fraud, a phony. But I remember reading these articles, these entries, never meant to be read, and I remember thinking, she sounds like a Christian. The tragedy of Simon Peter is harrowing because the weight of his failure is crushing for the reader who might remember Jesus' words back in chapter 10. Whoever disowns me before others, I will disown before my Father in heaven. Taken plainly, uninformed by the entire story, does this not mean that when Peter stands like every one of us in judgment before the Father, Jesus will disown him? But we know the story. We know that Peter will be restored. He will be the rock upon which Jesus will build the church, the first to expand the mission of Jesus beyond the Jewish people. But in tonight's story, we watch Peter disintegrate. 
why put this story in the Bible? If you are the one writing history, why wouldn't Jesus' earliest followers and eyewitnesses make themselves heroes rather than failures? Because this story is true. And so that you and I might see ourselves in it. Peter denying Jesus shows up in all four Gospels, which is pretty rare. But it's most incredible to me that it shows up in the Gospel of Luke, which we believe was authored with the help of none other than Peter himself. And remember, before the Gospels were written down, they were transmitted via oral tradition. These stories were told and retold across years and peoples. And we now know that Peter himself, inspired by the Spirit of God, insisted, tell the story of my failure. Write down the way that I failed Jesus, that I denied him not once, but three times. Like Manning calling the offices of Christianity today, let your readers know I lied. Tonight, we read as Peter disintegrated. But this will not be the end of the story. If you keep reading the New Testament, you will watch as Peter is reintegrated through forgiveness repentance, and restoration. Jesus should deny Peter. That would be fair. But instead, Jesus will restore him. I've been thinking lately, I don't know why exactly, but I started thinking this week about the popular, ubiquitous catchphrases of the Instagram generation, you know, the whole, you are worthy of love thing. Someone went around downtown Vancouver a while back plastering little signs that said that kind of thing. You are worthy of love on every block. And I would read them and think, is that so? Not in a woe is me, no one loves me kind of way, but are we worthy of love? Now, of course, I believe that we are loved by people and by God. But is it because we are worthy of it, as in we deserve it? If we are worthy of love and then God loves us, then the whole grace thing is not, not so amazing. It's not so scandalous. It's not really that costly at all. It's just cause and effect. We deserve to be loved, so God does it. Fair is fair. But if we are unworthy of love and yet cherished to the degree that the all-powerful cosmic creator and ruler of the universe would die for us, then that is amazing. That is scandalous. If we deserve to be disowned before God, if we are worthy of being disowned before God, and yet we will be declared righteous, without blemish, made perfect, well, then that defies any explanation other than radical Love. Surprising no one. I don't believe the Instagram philosophy is actually true. I don't believe that we are worthy and beautiful exactly as we are, contrary to the popular, popular verbiage. I believe we are God's creative masterwork. We are made in God's image. And in that sense, we are innately beautiful. But that beauty has been marred and corrupted by our awfulness, the selfishness within that enables us to treat one another and the rest of creation without love or grace or kindness or compassion. And we are seeing that on a regular basis in the public square in America this past year and these past few months and weeks. People look around 
clutching their pearls and disbelief. How could it be so bad? How could people be this awful? It comes to me as little surprise. We should be disowned by Jesus, like Peter. But for those of us who have, been, who have given our lives over to his teaching, for all our cycles of integration to disintegration and back again, he will not disown us. He will restore and redeem us. And without stories like this one, we might flaunt the generosity of God, abusing it, living as if our denying Jesus, our failures, and ultimately are all ultimately meaningless in the light of God's willingness to forgive them. It's often described as cheap grace. I read this week that there are ancient writings that allege that for the rest of his life, Peter wept every time he heard a rooster crow. I don't know if that's true or not, but whether it's literally true or not, that to me is the perfect picture of integration and disintegration in the same place. I believe that Peter knew he had been restored by Jesus. The story seems to say as much. And yet, he never forgot the night he denied knowing him. He said, tell the story of my failure. And here we are reading it. And perhaps as time deepened the well of Peter's great remorse, it dug deeper Peter's understanding that he had truly been saved. From what I can tell, some, pretty, uh, some people were pretty ticked that Brennan Manning would lie about his experiences during Hurricane Katrina. And the embarrassing controversy of it can easily obscure something that might be the most important detail in the story. The editor's note that broke the bad news of Manning's ruse read, from the editors, we regret to inform our reading, readers that following this on-the-record conversation, Brennan Manning called our office to apologize. Peter confessed Jesus, then denied him, then confessed him again. And if you read that story, when Peter is restored, you will see that it is a painful experience to have been elevated by Jesus as the rock than to fail him in such grand spectacle was it agonizing to stand in his presence again, having failed him so. Don't many of us know that it is. Brennan Manning told the truth, then lied, then told the truth again. I can't say for sure, but I believe it was likely possible that the readers of Christianity today might not have ever known Manning was lying. So why did he call? Why did he confess? Wasn't this editor's note that stands there today humiliating? Mother Teresa continued her work of caring and advocating for the sick and the poor, sharing the gospel, proclaiming the kingdom throughout the years of her quiet suffering, doubt, and despair. Why? Because the whole thing was a charade and her pride would not allow her to let it crumble? Or were all these things cycles? Integration to disintegration, then integrated again, through the crucible of repentance. This story in Matthew's gospel of Jesus, Peter's denial of knowing him, 
I believe that this is in the story. It's included here for you and for me. Aren't we like this failure, Peter? Can we not see ourselves in him? And isn't this reflection truly dreadful to behold? That we might look upon our own awful visage, our faces twisted, calling down curses. I don't know the man. Hasn't this been us in the little lies, bitter words, in lustful glances? Hasn't this been us in our selfish and thoughtless handling of money and resources, our overlooking the poor, our prioritizing our own desire over the world's pain? Hasn't this been us in our denying Jesus time and relational energy that we might devote to devices and screens while he waits, abandoned and longing for our hearts and attention while we drain both into smartphones and streaming services. I don't know the man. Hasn't this been us in our shopping and consuming, our demanding our own way, our overlooking our friends, our own children, the million times we've taken the easy road in the name of laziness and cowardice when Jesus beckoned us plainly down the difficult road that leads to life. I don't know the man. But, but, haven't most of us also known what it means to drag ourselves before the Jesus we denied knowing, bedraggled and shamed by the toll of our sin, and asked him through shivering tears to receive us again? Haven't most of us also come before him numb and at a loss for words to describe the same stupid sin, the same ridiculous mistake, and where we could no longer muster tearful contrition before him, he saw somehow in us a willing spirit beneath a weak flesh, and he forgave us just the same. The story is here for you and me to read and read again, to break our hearts and steady our discipleship from integration to disintegration to integration again through the crucible of repentance. Is it time tonight to move into that crucible's fire? Is tonight a night to pray, restore me, for I have denied you? This story is here to remind us. Let's pray together. Thanks for listening to Van City. You can connect with us and find more teachings and available resources at www.vancity.church. You can support Van City financially at vancity.church/give.